Welcome to the EverSaline podcast, the show that ignites your passion for leadership and empowers you to develop a culture of continuous improvement. I'm your host, Matt Sims, and in each episode, we bring you fascinating insights and invaluable tips from our incredible lineup of guests. What do they all have in common? They share an unwavering dedication to excellence and are the experts in driving engagement, improving metrics, and reducing costs. The Ever So Lean Podcast with Matt Sims. You know it makes sense. This episode is sponsored by Catalyst Consulting Limited. Catalyst Consulting exists to help people and organisations work better today and be ready for tomorrow. They have a rich history of igniting business transformation using business agility, lean, Six Sigma, strategy deployment, agile and change management. They can help you and your organisation to develop the skills necessary to work and manage differently. To find out more, check out catalystconsulting.co.uk. Welcome along to the Ever Saleem podcast, where in today's episode, we're privileged to host Daniel Astorita, an accomplished managing director at Kessler's London, key players in the retail design industry, where they offer their customers a full end-to-end service with global teams working together from design all the way through to implementation. With over a decade of leadership experience, Daniel brings a unique blend of business acumen and personal resilience to our conversation. Guided by the company's mantra, make UK retail the most exciting destination in the world, Daniel has spearheaded Kessler's remarkable achievements, going from zero to a 15 million turnover in two and a half years. Today, we'll explore Daniel's journey from revitalizing a struggling 130-year-old business to the strategic decisions driving Kessler's success. Join us as we delve into the innovative approach to retail design, the crafting of in-store experiences for global impact, and the values that make Kessler's a standout player in the industry. So without further ado, let's welcome Daniel to the Eversaline podcast, where we will uncover the stories behind leadership, resilience and the pursuit of excellence, all making UK retail the most exciting destination in the world. Daniel, welcome to the Eversaline podcast. That was the best introduction I've ever had in my life. No one's <laughs> ever been that nice to me. So thank it's an absolute pleasure to be here, Matt. Thank you. Didn't your best man at your wedding give you an introduction like that? Not as good as that. He Not failed. as good as that. No, absolutely. Give me his number. I'll send him over this and he can, you know, if you ever get married again, he can use it again. (laughs) You can do the next one. That's fine. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, welcome aboard. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you joining us today. And you are officially the first guest we've had on the podcast from the retail industry. So you're kind of like a a trailblazer here. You're setting the tone. Who's the guy off Dragon's Den that does retail? I can't think of his name now. Theogathetis was the old Ryman one, wasn't he? Yeah, I've always thought, you know, I'd love to go on Dragon's Den, but I think they edit it to make you look stupid. That's they the do. worry. Absolutely do. Absolutely. It's, it's the same with The Apprentice. I watch The Apprentice and I'm screaming at these wallies, thinking, what are you doing? Like, I could do this. I could do yeah. better than that. But they must make them look stupid. I think it's all about this, um, the new age and our sort of consumption for poor TV. You know, the original <laughs> Apprentice, one that Tim won, you know, he came across quite well. We're quite clever. And there's a few clever people on there. Fast forward now, these guys are just sort of wannabe celebrities kind of thing. And um, I'm sure there's a bit of editing, but I also think it's a bit of self-damaging there as well. Yeah, Joe, I love it when 
and they edit in that like someone will come up with an idea and they edit in this like really awkward silence and then it just cuts to people <laughs> just looking like into yeah. space right? yeah. <laughs> it's so, brilliant I mean, I mean i don't know how you could edit in the one from last season was it was it when they, they create a baby food and it was something to do you use the word dies in the baby food i was like that can't be editing that's just genuinely stupidity that is Right, so this is an amazing story. So you took over a business that was 130 years old and was, you know, quite honestly going down the pan. It went down the pan. So the business, uh, like you said, 130 years old. One of the oldest design and manufacturing business in the shop fitting game in Europe. Um, not just the UK, it was in Europe at the time. Family business up until about six, seven years ago, the family sold it um, into private equity. And I worked there. I was a sales director. Um, and we had a, a brief from private equity to grow the business and to grow it aggressively, which we did. The problem is we weren't making any money. And you know, we, we had this vision of selling the business for a load of money and all getting rich off the back of this wonderful turnover number. COVID happened, customers stopped wanting things. We had, we had all these overheads and private equity walked away. We made 180 people redundant um, on the 16th of December, two weeks before Christmas. Oh. And that was the end of this business. That was the end of this brand that had been around for so long. I'd worked there for six years, seven years before, and I'd always thought we could do it better, but never really had the courage to sort of voice my opinion to these sort of huge, you know, private equity machines that exist. So I approached the administrators and said, look, I'll, I'll buy the brand, I'll buy the IP, and I think I can do it better. And I, I ended up buying it um, with an investor, and we set about restarting it three years ago to something that was much closer aligned to the original business that, that had existed and been successful for 120 of the 130 years. And uh, yeah, here we are today going into year three and looking at another year of sort of 10, 12% growth, but more importantly, profitable, making investments into people, into factories and hopefully doing well for our customers. But your wife must have been thinking, what is he doing? <laughs> I mean, I, she was amazing because she was seven months pregnant at the time. So I had a one-year-old and she was, she was about to um, have our second. And I asked her and she, she's so supportive. Um, and she said, if you want to do it, just go and do it. And I was like, it's going to be a lot of late nights, a lot of early mornings, a lot of traveling, a lot of scary phone calls. And um, she went, is the house at risk? And I went, no, we'll sort that out. She said, if the house is at risk, we'll, we'll survive. So I went and done it with her back in. And she's very good at what she does. She's a head teacher. And um, so she's much more grounded than I am. So she let me go and have this pipe dream. She, I don't think she thought it'd be anything. I, thought she, I think she thought I'd get out of my system for a couple of months yeah. and go and get a real job. And I think she's all right with it now. She's come to, come to terms with it now. I'm such a huge believer in not having regrets. And I think taking that plunge, if you look back in 50 years and hadn't done it, you'd have been sitting there thinking, what if? And like you say, if you do it and it don't work out, you just get a job somewhere else. Like we all do it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely right. I, I, I actually have the words take a chance tattooed on me, which is a Vegas tattoo that I got on my stag do with, with my best man at the time. And it's, they say take a chance. And I think it'd be really stupid when a chance like this comes along to not take a chance if those are the words I've got inscribed on my body permanently. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd better do it. When I was 16, right, I should never have done it. I'm sure it's illegal, but I had some Japanese symbols tattooed down my arm, right? Yeah. And um, they told me they meant things like to do one's best and all this like really inspiring stuff. So I had it done. Anyway, fast forward like 20 years later, I was working in a company where we had this Japanese professor come over and he used to teach us lean. 
And um, one day I felt really brave. I just said, can you just tell me what this says on my arm? And it said nothing like what they told me it said, right? It, I can't remember what he said now. He was chuckling to himself. <laughs> so I had them covered up in the end. Like, <laughs> But all this time I was walking Brilliant. around and people must have been looking at me like, who are Japanese? Thinking, <laughs> what's that all about? What a wally. <laughs> so let's talk about the, uh, the remarkable turnaround that you've had in that period of time. So that was what, three years ago you took over? We're going into year three trading now. So it was two and a half years going into year three trading. So... I mean, there's probably so much to cover in this part of the, the subject, but how did you go about achieving that kind of turnaround? I think for, the first and foremost, and probably still the most important thing we we done was was to be very honest with people. So the business that had gone administration and um, ultimately liquidation had let down a lot of people. It had let down 180 members of staff. It had let down, I don't know, 100 creditors that were probably owed a couple of million quid. It had let down its customers because it's, it was failing to deliver. So the first thing we did was to be very honest with people and sort of lay our souls bare. So to go to our customers and go, we know this is going to cause you problems. We completely understand it. Here's the reason why. If we're able to do something over the next couple of months, could you at least let us come and talk to you? That's all we want is an audience with you for an hour. And they were, without exception, willing to talk to us once we got something off the ground. So that gave us a little bit of confidence that there might be something there to go at. The second thing was to, to bring back a very small number of staff who we could trust that were going to work really, really hard to help us get itself off the ground. And then it was to be really honest with the, the people that were owed a lot of money that says that we can't right all the wrongs day one. We, we can't make you whole again. The belt is too big. But what we can do is we can give you an opportunity to work with us again um, on different terms, different price structure, different level of integrity, a different, different open book policy. And we'll come and talk to you. We'll show you what you want to do. And if you give us a bit of wood, we will pay you on these terms. We'll, we'll stick to our word. When we do that, we want two bits of wood the next week. And it was small acorns, really. And we, we brought back six people and then month two, it was 22. And now we've got 102. Um, so it was, it, was, it was slowly, slowly, but it was all focused around honesty and integrity. That's amazing. Was it really hard with those customers to rebuild that brand that they've been let down with? Or was it challenging? I think there was different levels of challenge. I think we were we had to be honest and we had to explain the, the journey we've been on with private equity. We had to explain a lot around the, the macroeconomics. And we basically, we walked away, we were a 30 million pound business, losing 3 million, working with 35, 40 customers. And because we were chasing turnover in those years, 10, 12, 15 of those customers weren't the right customers for us. Either they weren't paying on time, the mix of work wasn't right. We'd gone into industries that weren't aligned to what we actually do. So when we decided to stick to our knitting and get back to our basics of what we do really, really well as being a UK manufacturer, we explained that to our customers and they got it. And that was what they wanted us to do. They wanted us to go back to what we were doing two years before. So we, we were just trying to ask them to remember the times when we were amazing and we were doing all the right things. And if they could judge us on that and not the, the sort of six months building up to the administration, then that would hold us in, in good stead. And look, they didn't come back with million pound orders day one. They came back slowly you know here's a couple of hundred quid and here's a couple of thousand pounds and it, it took a while to build up that trust again for sure but you know we hopefully we're there now we deliberately didn't do any new business for the first 12 months just wanted to concentrate on the core customers and actually the market started coming towards us people started coming back to us and saying will you work with us again and some we said yes to and some would say no unfortunately you know we can't service your account because we haven't got the infrastructure today or we or we can't afford to purchase your stuff from china and meet the margins that you need to because we haven't got that sort of cash on hand. So we'll talk to you in two years' time or three years' time. So it was a really bespoke solution, really individualised to each customer. It must have been hard as well, because two and a half years ago, you sort of smack bang in the middle of COVID. I mean, to be doing this in that environment must have just added a whole new layer of complexity. 
Yeah, I guess from memory, we were coming out the back of COVID. So during COVID, actually, COVID probably for us masked a lot of problems that existed in the business previously, because obviously the, the business could take out, you know, C-bills loans and government grants and all sorts of things. And what the business was able to do was just switch to, because we're a shop, we're a shop fitting design company. We're making, you know, shopping shops or we're making stands and units that go into retailers or for brands. We just switched the business to making COVID screens. So for a year, all we made was sheet plastic with a bit of metal on the base and stuck it in a retailer. And because we had plastic and we had the machinery, actually that last year wasn't particularly bad for us. It was, you know, we, we had the furlough scheme available to us. So it probably covered up problems that existed in the business the year before that. So as we came out of the back of COVID and the PPE work dried up, the core work didn't come rushing back or flooding back at the same rate. That was when it kind of, the wheels kind of started to fall off. I look at shop windows now in a totally different way since I started speaking to you. I look at them now and I think, oh, no, what goes? Normally you just walk past them. You don't even look. But I look oh, at them differently. I'm not doing my job. <laughs> I'm not doing my job if you're walking past them. <laughs> what was that film of when I was a kid and it was this mannequin that came to life? What was that? Do you remember the one I mean? Genuinely don't. And he fell in love with the mannequin. And then when people weren't looking, they got, I think it was Tom Hanks. It might have been Tom Hanks. And he stayed in the department store overnight to be with this mannequin. Someone will know what it is. Someone will tell us. But it was a brilliant film. I'm going to have to find it. Have to yeah. find it. I've got a mannequin factory out of the back. I hope they don't come to life at night. <laughs> yeah, I don't say that. <laughs> yeah. You ain't got those dolls like what Del Boy had, have you? That, I haven't. No, I haven't. <laughs> no, no, but that is some classic British TV right there. That is fantastic. Yeah, love it. I always end up talking about Only Fools and Horses. People must listen to this podcast going, what's this guy on? Like, Best thing ever made. Towers, best thing ever made. <laughs> so strategic wise then, so what decisions and initiatives contributed to the success? What did you really have to like, do at that at very early stage to sort of set yourself on that right road? One of the first things we had to do was negotiate with a landlord of a 130,000 square foot site that hadn't been paid their rent for six months, that we were going to stay there for six months and pay them a very minimal rent <laughs> while we tried to exit their building safely. So that was like a really big challenge because, you know, these, these guys probably owed a million quid and say, look, we can't afford to pay you, but we're going to get our machinery out of your site safely and, and leave you a clean site. And we'll give you a, a, you know, a token gesture each month for, for that privilege. Because what we had to do, we had to, the site wasn't viable. The site was 130,000 square foot. Rent was 2.6 million pounds a wow. year. We had to take the business to a new, a new location, a new home effectively. And so the first thing we had to do was balance up where that home should be. We were in Stratford in East London, which is, you know, it's quite sought after real estate at the moment. But we had 100 people that were, we, we were going to need for the business plan that were employed from the local area. So taking the business to Manchester, I would have got amazingly great, you know, cheap, cheap space, cheap rent. Taking the business to Wales would have got very cheap rent, but I would have no staff. So we had all this core skill. So we had to balance out a geographical move versus the cost of the move, the cost of the ongoing rent and commitment versus the loss of the workforce. So that was the biggest strategic thing we, we had to do within the first, first few months. We took the decision to, um, to keep the business in London. I mean, Kessler's Essex did quite have the same ring to it. So Kessler's London was the name we gave it on day one. And we felt like we kind of tied ourselves to London quite early, but we took it out to the right to the periphery of, of London. You could hit Essex with a stone. And we found a site that was 40,000 square foot, so about a third of the space. And we said, that's our new home. And almost everybody said, it's too small. It doesn't work. You're going from 130 to, to, to 40. It, it doesn't work. And I was like, well, that's when I started to take an interest in you know, optimization and lean and 5S. Because previously, I come from a sales background. I didn't care. <laughs> I, didn't care if, I didn't care about lean. I just wanted my stuff on time for my customers. But now it was mine and then, you know, the cash flow was mine and the cost of sale was mine. I had to start taking a real interest in how much work we produce from this site to make the business profitable and viable, but also to keep a, a workforce employed that was going to make it and didn't have to travel too far. So that was probably the biggest strategic thing that we had to deal with in the first few months. 
it must have been hard going from being an employee to being the owner and having to make these decisions. What a transition that is. I guess in, in some way, yes. And then in other ways, I came out the back of it having spent the last couple of years watching people not doing it well and, and they can have their suits on and they can they can have their you know their accountancy degrees and all these sorts of things but actually it doesn't mean they understand the fiber of the business and having worked there for a while I felt like if I've done it with the best intentions and I've done it genuinely I've done it as me if I tried to reinvent myself as, as something that I wasn't then I wouldn't I wouldn't have carried the people with me they would have seen it it was through me as, as fake so I thought if I do it honestly and I bear my soul and I tell people what I'm trying to do and I'm honest with people. If it works, we stand up in front of the business every month and we give them the results. So they know for better or worse, whether we hit target, both from a turnover and profitability level. And if I bear my soul, they'll come with me. And, you know, it's got its challenges at times because you can't be friends with everybody. And you've got to make tough decisions. But 99% of the time, you know, I walk around the shop floor and I'm, I'm talking to people as, as, like they're, as like they're my friends. And we're all kind of in it together. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's so often overlooked. I've always been a big fan of having daily Gemba walks, you know, getting down on the shop floor, walking around, talking to people, the people that are doing the job uh, and asking them those open ended questions, you know, talk to me about or tell me why or how do you feel about this? Make them feel part of it. And I think in the time that I've spent with you over the last week or so, I think that I definitely pick up that you are very much a people driven leader. You respect people and you value their inputs. Absolutely. I think it's by a lot of retail. I think retail is such a great people leveler across the board, whether you're a customer or you're a, a worker within the retail environment. I think it's the lost art as well. I think it's the one thing that some businesses don't do very well. When I look at businesses that don't do well around me or in the macro industry, I just think they've lost touch of it, of, of almost reality, really. They've lost touch of the fire of the business. So yeah, absolutely. We're out there every day talking to people. I know what, I know what Shanta had for dinner last night. No, it's great, though, that you make that time and you get down with the people because it really does go so far that you are there giving them that time because so often people don't. One of the other things I was just going to mention is that when you were talking about the size of the warehouse and the square footage, one of the things that I've always found, they only work on the ground level. So you imagine you've got this big tin warehouse. It's one level but everything's on the floor. You've got all of that space above it that's all wasted space. And in some places I've been, they've, you know, we've put mezzanine in and we've put extra floors in. And there was this one organisation where things were sorted into areas, but then they had to be stored before they went to the next area. And traditionally, there was moved to another area of the plant and then stored in, in a floor space. But that floor space was then wasted for the next six, seven hours whilst it was waiting to be dispatched, whereas you could actually have another line running there and sort of increase your throughput. So what we did is we created this system where the storage moved it up into the air. So it sat above where all the work was. It lifted it up like mechanically. And all of a sudden, our warehouse doubled in size because we had double the footprint because you can now move it up in the air. And I always wondered, like, I've never seen that anywhere else that I've ever been other than that one site. And I was like, why has no one else done this? <laughs> this is going to sound like we practiced this. And I don't know, you might have to edit this out, but this is the God's honest truth. And we haven't spoken about this. I finished installing a mezzanine floor like last week. No way. <laughs> hand to hand to God, I finished installing a mezzanine floor last week. And what we're going to do is we're going to take our sample shop and prototype shop, which is a really highly skilled carpentry-led kind of group of guys off the shop floor, put them in the mezzanine because most of their tools are hand tools and it's, they're doing a lot more with their hands and they don't need access to the big plants down there. We're going to put in another machine and we're going to put in a, um, a bigger assembly area. 
And literally, no word of a lie, finished it last week. That's amazing. See, this is meant yeah. to be, isn't it? I mean, this is just... I'll send you a photo. <laughs> oh, no, I love it. It's, it's so good. And the fact that you weren't really into things like lean and stuff before, yet, you know, as a business owner and you're trying to maximise and try, trying to get all of the juice out of your orange, I just love it. It's brilliant. It's getting lost <laughs> in it. Um, I want to talk about your philosophy for nurturing a culture of problem solving and continuous improvement, because it sounds like you're doing it. How do you encourage your people and your teams to sort of get involved and engaged in that culture? I think it comes from a place of honesty. I think certainly from a a senior management team meeting we have, which we have once a week, we genuinely have a job titles off off the table. So we've got seven of us in the room. I'm a managing director by default. I didn't actually have designs of doing this. And therefore, I'm the youngest one in the room. But I don't know it as much as you know, they know more than me about a lot of parts of the business. And therefore, if I pretend I know more or I try and kid my way through it, they're, they're too clever. They're going to they're call me out. And I think that filters right away down the business. If I try and tell a guy that's running a wood machine that he's not doing it right, who am I to tell him? He knows me as the salesperson from three years ago. So I think you know, what I can add is, is a little bit of critical thinking, a little bit of oversight. I can, you know, I can look at a balance sheet and a cash flow, make sure that makes sense. But from an operational standpoint, I'm taking my guide from the people that have been doing it for 20 years because they know they've seen it all before. They've done it for four owners. They've done it for different operations directors. So if he tells me the right way of doing it is this way, I'm going to accept that and I'm going to take that at face value and we're going to run it. We're going to do it that way. And then if we make a mistake, we own it. Right. So I think we make mistakes routinely, weekly, daily, monthly, and we own them and we rewind back from them. We have a zero blame culture. So if someone tries to do the right thing. I don't know how you can hold them responsible if they're trying to improve your business, but they make a mistake. That's on you, right? You, if they get it right nine out of 10 times, you're going to have a, such a better business for that. So I think it's about taking down any sort of blame. I think it's about taking down any sort of fear. I think it's about rewarding. I think it's about, I'm talking about monetary, yes, but I think there's also a, a, a rewarding people with a better workplace. So we spoke about competing with these huge global businesses. You know, We've got people on the shop floor who are paid 10% above minimum wage, they could probably go and work in 20 different places. So how do I compete with the, the Amazons or the, or, the, or the Tesco's or the going to be a, a delivery driver for DPD? I've got to think of, well, you know, how do I make my workplace stand out above them? How do I make it more fun, more exciting, more challenging, more rewarding, and all of those things. And we, we, talk, we spend a lot of time talking about how we do that as an SMT and how we filter that down to everybody in the business. I want to be part of this. It sounds so good. <laughs> I could sweep up sawdust. You can come and help me with my lean. I don't pretend to be an expert. Um, I read The Machine That Changed the World was my first oh, yeah. book. I read that. I read, you know, I read the, the, it's the Toyota factory, isn't it? And um, it is, yeah. all of that stuff. So I'm, I'm doing my reading at the moment, but I am in no, no way an expert. So if you want to come and give me some... Um, I'd love to. Cheap advice then, Matt. I need, I need it cheap, right? <laughs> cheap advice. Do you know what? What I love about continuous improvement is that you never know all the answers. It's all always a learning experience and everywhere you go every organization every work area every business every industry it's never the same it's always different and that's what makes it so exciting is because there's always more ways to improve so that's what excites me about retail is it's never the same thing we're never doing the same that we're never on the same project we're never making the same unit or the same customer every customer's got a different brand or a different brand interpretation so every day every day is a school day and it's interesting that you're talking about experience of your people who know the roles and obviously they know it better than you. So it doesn't show respect for people if you go down there and start telling them how to do it. If you relate that back to everyday life, you don't go into your doctors and go, um, I'm, by the way, I've got a rash. I'm, I'm telling you now what it is. This is what I want for it. You, you're expecting their expertise to help you. 
the same way you don't go down the chip shop and go right i want uh i want a cod and chips but i want the cod but you need to roll it around in that flour then you need to put it in that batter then that goes in there six minutes and then i want it dished up i want it rolled three times in the paper you wouldn't do it would you you're trusting them that they know their train dream of doing it absolutely Absolutely, and then they 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 put a lot. They put a huge amount of trust into me to to lead the business or to run the business to pay them every month. And yeah, so the trust is two ways. So they're they're trusting me. Of course, I've got to trust them back to that they know what they're doing. And that doesn't stop you asking probative questions. You know, so if someone's done something for twenty years, asking why you've done it for twenty years, have you considered that? And if they can defend or rebut you, then that's absolutely fine. I think it's about you know nurturing a culture of challenging each other, yeah. but then accepting when when something's right. Because if you do go to someone and ask them why they've done it. And they go, oh, I never thought of doing it that way. And you change it, you change it together. You've got a better business for it. If you try and enforce change on it, then for me, you're, you're into a, into a shoeing. Why do some people think that just because they're more senior than they know more and that gives them the God-given right to go down there and tell that person how to do their job? Yeah, I think if you could answer that question, you would be on a incredibly high retainer <laughs> with some of the biggest businesses in the world because there seems to be this absolute sense of arrogance and, and complacency that exists, you know, I've worked in, in various businesses and been part of takeovers and, and watched takeovers happen and, you know, part of successful businesses and unsuccessful businesses. And it always seems to be this kind of, I know better. I'm walking in day one and I'm going to change, I'm going to change your life and it's going to be for the better without ever really taking the time to understand why something exists. Mm. And I guess from the outside and coming into a, a talking about things like Lean and, and, and 5S and stuff, it's always been my, my challenge back to the lean practitioners that I've seen come into businesses, which is two or three different either individuals or companies. And it's not their fault because actually they're measured on their output. So if you're a board paying for someone to come in and do a month review of your business, you want to see something at the end of the month that looks tangible and you know, look like they're going to make a saving or optimization or increase capacity. But they come in and, and they'll say, map your process. I don't think most of them really care what your process is. They want to tell you what the process should be without ever really taking the time to understand what it is. And then you're going to have to correct me when I go wrong here because, you know, much more than... But for me, when I read Lean and I read the theory, it's people-centric. It is absolutely based on empowering people and taking ideas and, and putting them to principle. But my, my lived experience of that isn't always the same. It's always about the tangibles and the metrics, but not always taking into account the, the people factor, the culture factor. You know, I've got Carol next to Shanta downstairs bending plastic for, and they've been doing that for 20 years and they... They talk for eight hours a day while they're doing their work and they're doing it really efficiently. And if you move Carol over there, she's going to be really disheartened because actually she's lost her friend at work. But it might save me four minutes a day of material move. But she's going to leave next week because now she's really unhappy. Do you know what I mean? That people factor never really comes into it. And I think I listened to David Savage podcast that you did with him. And, and he was the first person I've ever, who's, who's sort of ever been that guru in that sphere that's really sort of seemed like he got it. He seemed to completely understand the people factor. And it was really enjoyable listen, actually. Yeah, it's nice when you get those moments when you listen to someone who's who's been there and done it and you know you're thinking the same way as what they do. You get the moment of, yes, I'm on the right path. Yeah, it's yeah. But it's true. The whole premise of Lean is about respect for people. If you overlook that, if you park it and say, I'm going to come back to that later, right now we just need to save some money, it's not going to work. In, in the long run, you're going to lose out because you have to take the people with you. If you don't, yeah. I've been in organisations where it's just been Lean has just been rolled out to make it look good for the stock market or it's just been rolled out to make it look good because there's a senior leader coming down and you know we want to look like we're leading the way and as soon as they go you mothball it in the corner like you do your christmas decorations you stick them in the loft for you know 11 months and you whip them out again that's what we did with lean and then we we were like well why are we not seeing any any performance improvement 
And then you start fudging the numbers. You start going, well, if we exclude that data because, you know, it was raining that day. And if we exclude that data, so-and-so was late that day, it looks good. Then you start playing with it and it's not real, is it? You, you've no, got to keep no, it real. Too. We work with a customer, I won't name them because I'll get in trouble, but a, a big global brand. And every, every year their CEO will come over from Europe and then we'll do a sort of UK retail walk. And they basically, we get told the itinerary where, where they're going to go for a two weeks before we then spend two weeks going around those very specific retailers to make them look the best version of themselves so half of one percent of the estate that he sees it goes away and he's all very happy of what he saw but it's not true it doesn't represent 99.5 percent of the estate that's out there it's absolutely fake and you know we, we always smile and we're, we're you know we, we they, they know what they're doing i think i'm sure he probably knows but it's all a bit faux and you kind of think if we if we just put a little bit more effort into it throughout the year we'd never have to do that yeah, if you're one of those people on the factory floor doing the job day in, day out, and they see that happening, what message is that sending to them? Because they're going to be sitting there thinking, this is ridiculous. Like, why are we doing this? Absolutely. And it, and it, it breeds complacency and contempt, really. Yes, madness. I want to know more about this from a personal perspective for you, because, you know, kind of being like a, a paramedic that's been called out to resuscitate a 130-year-old business it is a massive ask and you've already said that you had one child you had another one that was due within a couple of months you've got a wife that's heavily pregnant you've got bills you've got mortgages you've got all this going on how do you find the time to do this uh, i think you know i i get to come on and talk to you i get to put stuff on LinkedIn, I get to be the face of the business. But I am incredibly lucky that I chose the right people day one to come back and, and work with me from a management team perspective. It's really easy for me to to talk to you with the rhetoric and, and, and to say, you know, I'm, a, I'm a practice sales guy, right? That's easy to do. But the, the actual implementation of it is about the, the management team around me. Like genuinely, I trust them implicitly. I could go away on a two-week holiday and I, I don't worry about the business because we've all got the same ambition for the business. So that was probably the best thing I did was to put the right people around me and I'm not talking about people that will agree with me all the time. We have a lot of conflict with a lot of debate, a lot of sometimes friction, but always healthy friction. I want to be challenged. I want to be, I want people to say, you're a bloody idiot. You know, that's a stupid idea. Don't do it. And I'm, I'm super ambitious. I'm super driven for the business. And sometimes I'm going to need to say, stop, you know, too much, too soon, put the brakes on. So how do we do it? The answer to that question, how do I do it? Is I don't do it. I don't do it. I'm the mouthpiece of the business. It is genuinely a, a leadership team effort supported by another 96 people in the business that have bought into the vision, I guess. From a home life point of view, you know, I spent a long time, a long time trying to have my, my son, I said five years. So I'm now a really conscious father. Like I really do try and leave work at 5.30, get home for bath and bed and spend that hour and a half with no phones and just focus on spending time with them at weekends and a really attentive dad. And then if he goes to bed, I might get the phone out and do a bit more work or the laptop out. And that's fine because there's nothing on TV anyway. I get real enthusiasm and excitement now that they get into the age that I can start to really enjoy them for my kids and my wife as well. My sort of, I have a release valve as well. You know, I love it. I love going out with my friends. I love a night out. I still pretend I'm 25 and want to go out to the bars and, 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 and do the shots and stuff like that. So I have a release valve and I think it's really important to get that balance because you can become consumed by it. And I try not to take anything too seriously. It all went wrong three years ago and I would kind of, everything else since then is, is a bonus and we're going to enjoy it and we're going, to, we're going to try and do it really, really well. But we're going to try and enjoy it along the way because I think you work too long not to enjoy what you do. And we work in such a cool industry. I work in retail. I get to see the new Nike store in New York. I get to work at the, the front end of you know this, this huge industry that's creating jobs and creating excitement and creating enthusiasm because we're all consumers of retail. So I, get, I feel like I get to do things that's, that's something really exciting. So that gets me out of bed every morning as well. 
13-time single prize winner Dr. Jeffrey Liker and Toyota Kata author Mike Rother have created the Improvement Kata and Coaching Kata online course. This inexpensive, compact program is designed to transform your thinking and approach, making you a highly skilled learner and coach. Engage in deliberate practice to turbocharge your progress. You also get lifetime access to the materials, including all of the bonus interviews. Why pay up to 10 times the price elsewhere? Listening to some consultant when you can gain direct insights from the masters themselves. Skip the rest and go with the best. Join us today and embark on your journey to excellence. Just click on the link below to start your journey. With 30 years of experience in certifying a range of improvement techniques, BQF is the standard you can trust in an ever-expanding market of qualifications. To gain a BQF certification, you need to demonstrate more than knowledge. You need to prove that you've been there, done it, and have learned from your mistakes. A BQF certification guarantees professionals who can walk the walk. Once certified by BQF, you are listed on their certification register where you can annually update your status to prove that you're still practicing your skills. BQF certifications come in four levels, Associate Practitioner, Practitioner, Advanced Practitioner and Master Practitioner, giving opportunity to grow and develop in each of these areas. Head to bqf.org.uk today to find out more about certifications in change management, customer experience, lean, lean six sigma, living your values, mental health and well-being, personal development and program and project management. I can see it. I can see the energy like coming off you. It's it's amazing. <laughs> I wrote a blog actually the other day about what what is good leadership. And one of the things that I put in there, and it's really funny you just mentioned it, was listening to people that were around you but not taking the credit for other people's work. And there's nothing worse than when you work for somebody who will get you doing all the work for them and then they'll, you know, on a call, you're on the call with them and they'll go, yeah, I've produced this paper. And you think, well, you didn't produce it. I did it for you. And you don't do that. You can see straight away that, you know, you're giving that recognition to the people that are doing the work for you, which is incredible. I'll take the credit for putting them in the role, right? That's, that's the, all the credit I need, yeah? And I don't exist without them. I don't, I don't have a business. I don't pay my mortgage the same way without them. But that's my, that's my leadership team. But it's also, it's also the guy on the spray booth, in a spray booth for us, the guy on the, on the wood machine, you know? We kind of had this rallying cry where we're going to try and do it together. It's us against the world kind of day one. And it's kind of got us through quite well. So why come away from that? Because we're trying to, we're still on this sort of regeneration plan. We're still trying to reestablish ourselves. I'm not arrogant enough to think that two years does a great business make, right? In three years' time, if we've done it five years on the bounce, then maybe there's there's an accolade or an applause there or something. But two years is just, it could just be really good luck. So we've got to keep working really hard at it. You're on the right path. I have no doubt you're on the right path. It sounds amazing. That escapism piece where you need to sort of chill out and download. Yeah. I'm quite into Formula One. I used to play like Formula One games online and stuff like that, but before I had kids. Now I spend all my spare time trying to sort out my son's Minecraft that he's locked himself <laughs> out of and stuff like that, right? I'm on the other side of it. But um, last year, my wife took the kids away for the week, Monday to Friday on some sort of cheap package holiday. 
I was at home all week on my own. By Monday afternoon, I'd bought myself the new Formula One game for the Xbox. I'd bought myself the steering wheel, the simulated steering wheel and pedals. I'd bought myself the rig to put it all on and all that. <laughs> I'd even bought myself racing gloves, right? So it felt real. And it all arrived Tuesday morning. And Tuesday to Friday, literally, no word of a lie, I was on this racing simulator nonstop, right? It was so good. I was all in Indian every night. So I had three Indians in a row. I was at all these beers in the fridge. It looked like I'd had some kind of like men behaving badly stag party slapping back at uni love it <laughs> it was amazing it was like a holiday in itself it was absolutely brilliant <laughs> three days out of 365 you know that's less than one percent you can't be that can't be that bad but it's funny though how when you you have kids you do change because like if i've got if i'm invited to a stag do now and it's going to cost me 300 quid because most stag do's now are going abroad and everyone wants to go off somewhere or other and that's going to be three, four hundred quid plus spending money. I sit there and go, do you know what? I'd rather spend that money on going away with the kids and like having a family holiday. I just I wouldn't enjoy it going on a stag do as much as I would going away with them because you create those memories and you know you remember them, don't you? And they remember them. They really do, and they're at the age they absorb everything, and it's they're, they're, they're you know, and I, I'm sure it sounds cliche, but I have so much fun with them. And it's genuine fun. It's not fake fun. It's not forced fun. You know, I've been on stag dudes where you're kind of forcing yourself to do riding pedalos. And you know what? I'm nearly 40. Like, Sometimes you can have amazing times on stag dudes and sometimes I'm a bit like, I'm a bit up to old for it. I went to a venue last night because I am 40 this year and um, they were booking a venue for a party. They said, how much money are you going to put behind the bar? And most people would put a couple of thousand pounds behind the bar. So people can pay for their drinks, right? That's 2,000 pounds. That's a holiday with my kids. That's 2,000 pounds. I'll take them to centre parks or I'll, I'll do something with them instead. Yeah. Like, and, and if you want to come to my party, you can. Uh, I'll give you a sausage roll, but you can pay for your beer. Yeah, damn right. You should pay for people's drinks as well. They should be buying your drinks. It's your birthday. <laughs> the woman there looked at me like I was all right. Cheap, though. She, she, she <laughs> yeah, she was like a scowl. I was like, okay. Anyway. So I want to talk about innovating retail design, because as I said to you before, right, I've never really noticed it. I notice it on the films. So when you watch things like Home Alone and they're, you know, they're going into New York at Christmas, they just look stunning, like all the designs. Yeah. Um, I used to commute to London quite a lot and have to walk through Westfield to get between the two Stratford stations. Okay. And walking through Westfield, you'd see the shops and I'd notice they'd change quite frequently. But again, I never really paid attention to what went into it. So you've kind of opened up a whole new world for me now, and I'm going to start sort of studying it and <laughs> wondering what's going on. But what insights can you share about the way Kessler's approach to retail design has been so popular? What is it that you do differently? So, so first of all, Westfield um, Stratford is our is our home territory. So the, the former factory was in Stratford. So Westfield, we were in Westwood every day for lunch. It was... Um, I used to have a £25 a day lunch habit um, because... £25 was... a day? Yeah, probably. Yeah, Where was you large... eating? Well, that's the thing with Westfield. You've got a choice of about 20 different places. So you know, all these going street... to a mall every I was, day. You know, <laughs> it was like a pub crawl. <laughs> I was having a three-course meal for lunch, you know, every day. And I, I was, yeah. Um, so that's the bad thing about moving out to, to, um, to where we are now is there's nothing around here apart from a Tesla Express. I think, like, you've got to kind of stay up to date with what retail is doing. And I think... COVID has accelerated the change in retail. The change was coming and it was coming slowly. It's a bit like sustainability. Sustainability has been a buzzword for 20 years. Previously to um, COVID, the buzzword was experimental. Well, that's now here. It's now live. It's happening right in front of our eyes. Post-COVID, footfall has returned to where it was post-COVID, which if you think about it, it's, that's, it's almost a little bit perverse. Because why? Because actually during COVID, you didn't shop. You didn't go anywhere. 
and what you had is you had no need to go anywhere because everything was online and every, every click that you could get, you could get anything. So why are you out there shopping at the weekends with your, with your, with your children or your, or your wife or your friends? Well, you're doing it because you're getting an experience. And some of those experiences are positive and some of them are negative. And if you look at sort of retailers that haven't innovated particularly well over the last five, six years, 10 years, even like Maplin or Toys R Us or Wilco recently, which is incredibly sad, their stores became really dull and boring and not really nice places to go. They became a necessity. So what you've got in a post-COVID world is you've got footfall at the same level. The average spend has gone up because more people are shopping luxury or more people are going into value and buying more. And you've got this real squeeze in the middle. So it's kind of these middle of the road retailers that have really started to struggle and now competing for a much less market share because you've got this click to order. So if you look at retailers like Louis Vuitton or Prada or Hermes, they're opening bricks and mortar. And the reason they're doing that, I think, and it's, it, I think it comes on the back of what Nike did in New York, is they get that Bricks and mortar retail is no longer about an OPEX cash receipt through the till. It's about your relationship with the brand. So if you if you open a store in Oxford Street and you go in and have an amazing experience with uh, with Hermes or a Mont Blanc, you might go home and order it online. And they have now got sophisticated enough that they can separate that in their P&Ls and, and, and their operational plans to being directly linked to the bricks and mortar experience that you have. So it's about creating brand loyalty, brands, value brand, whatever the word is. And how are they doing that? Well, it's about experience, you know, and we, so we, our mantra, and it's a, it's a, it's a vision that we'll never achieve, but it, you set visions that you, you strive for is to, to make the UK the most exciting retail experience in the world. And we do that by really focusing on a few things around design. So creative design, incorporating technology and technology, you know, instant gratification, AI, augmented reality. How do you put that into physical retail stores? Because we're all used to it. We've all got it on our phone. So it's got to be part of your shopping experience. So when you go into the new M&S store and they spent a lot of money on, on five stores last year and you go into a store that hasn't had that treatment and you compare the two, they're chalk and cheese. And you come out of that store and you are infused and excited and you've had a great relationship you've had a great experience of MS. you might go home and order your christmas shopping from the MS, and but you've had a great experience with, the, with, with being in that physical environment so we're saying that we're a uk manufacturing business and we can do anything we've got some amazing creative designers we've got some great young people we've got some experts in the industry we can give you anything and we can make it here in the uk we can make it quickly because retail's quick now it's much more agile so spaces become available more retailers are doing pop-up shops or fashion shows or they're putting physical retail into glastonbury for example and we can react to that ever-changing market and actually we can give you a really cultivated experimental display unit shop experience that your customers are going to remember I'm a sucker for super dry and Hollister. Firstly, as soon as you get to the store, it's just got this vibrant, modern just feel about it. Then you go in there. I really like the dark wood and the uh, spotlights and the really dark lighting. It's just like going to a nightclub to buy clothes. Yeah. And then once you've been into that experience, you buy the clothes and they fit nicely. Like it, it's a good quality product and you like the brand. And exactly what you say now, I will now go online and buy those products in that brand because I just like the feel of the store. Even though I'm not going to the store, yeah, I'm still doing it. The one thing I do find, though, is down near me, there's a designer outlet. I go to this designer outlet. It's in a circle, so it's quite nice. You can walk around it. But I find I don't walk around it once. I walk around it three or four times, and I always leave disappointed because I can never get what I want. It used to be that those outlets used to sell, like, last year's stock, and they used to knock out stuff a lot cheaper. 
but it feels like they don't do that anymore. It feels like they just sell the stock you get in a normal store and it's it's the same price. Like it doesn't seem any different. It's kind of lost its its magic. I do know. I, so I live I live in, in Essex. I'm not too far away from um, Freeport, which is exactly the same as is a designer outlet yeah. village that has gone through exactly the same journey. And I'm not sure whether they would these outlet. Yeah, Bista is probably the exception. Bista, you can get a, you you could book a tourist trip from China to go to Bista. So you come to the UK, you do your tourist trip, and there's coach loads of people coming down from Kings Cross and Euston to and London to go to Bista Village. And actually, wow. the, the the experience in that outlet store, they are nailing it absolutely right. And if you go to Bista, the Tommy Hilfiger store in Bista, that is experimental retail working really really hard for you. And then you've kind of got these little like my one and potentially your one, these kind of little outliers that are kind of in the middle that aren't really servicing anybody because they're not really value anymore, but they haven't really gone full hog and given you that real experience. And those are the the, the spaces and the retailers and the brands are, are either going to have to innovate and get off the pot or they're going to lose that space. Yeah, because they've not adapted, have they? They've not no. adapted to the market. I'll no. tell you what, right? My, my tip next have got it right. If you want to attract people into your store, stick a Costa in there because I will go to Next. <laughs> Whenever I go shopping, I go to Next because it's got Costa in there. <laughs> we had this conversation yesterday, didn't we, about Costa versus Starbucks. It's funny because you never see a Starbucks inside a store, do they? They have never done that. They did it. They did it. Um, they did it with Sainsbury's, for, you know, very small number of stores, and they took them out. But, but cost of being in next is part of that experience. So experience could be technology. It could be about the customer service you receive. It could be about whether yeah. they've got a coffee shop and a play area for the kids. It doesn't have to be about virtual reality or things fly off the wall. You. It's just about your your experience in that store. Because I'm not suggesting that every value retailer is do the same treatment as what Nike have done in New York. But getting the experience right in store, because my, my wife loves next as well. You know, everything in our house is, is next. And we're, we're there every weekend, fortunately. But I don't think their stores are particularly imaginative or exciting but you're absolutely right they are destinations because they've got this they've got the they've got a next home which is which is a sort of a, a play away from the sort of traditional next clothing if so their next home is where we spend a lot of time but they've got a cost of coffee in there so that's a really small small thing that they've done but i bet you that's driven a lot of people into a next door that then made an impulse purchase yeah my wife will say to me you like, know oh we need to we need to get my seven-year-old a new coat it's a bit small for that one and i go oh, yeah you're right I'll go, let's try Next. And she'll go, oh, no, 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 we need to go to Matalan or Tico. I go, no, no, we'll go to Next. I like the quality of Next. And as soon as we get to Next, I go, are you going to look at the coats? I'm just going to go look in the men's section. I walk straight past the men's section into the Costa, straight in there, nailed it. The only reason we bought our house is because it had a coffee machine built into the kitchen. As soon as I saw that, I was like, we're having this house. That's a great reason. <laughs> we're having it. I don't care reason. what's the rest of it. It's brilliant. And do you know what? I use it once a year, whether I want to or not, I will use that coffee machine once a year because it's such a hassle to clean everything and to get it all out. I'd rather just pop yeah. over to the petrol station and get a Costa Express. Absolutely. Convenience. But that's another one. Costa Express machines. Like That's just changed the world as hasn't well. It just, hasn't it just? Convenience. Some petrol stations as well now offer you, if you get like 30 litres of fuel, you get a free Costa from the machine as well. Really? I'm missing out. Yes. I'm definitely, I mean, maybe I need to convert. Well, I've gone from saying to my wife, oh, I'm always filling these cars up every day. I'm going, do you need fuel? <laughs> car needs fuel. I'm sure it needs fuel. I'll, I'll go and sort it out. <laughs> love that. Love that. Oh, Knocking on my neighbour's door like, do you need fuel? <laughs> I'll do it for you. <laughs> Queuing up behind the HGG drivers. Are you using your free, are you using your points today, mate? Can I use them? I've actually been in like in the Costa queue behind people where they've ordered their drinks and they've ordered like 30 quid's worth of gear. And then the person goes, have you got a Costa card? And they go, no. And I'm, I have to stop myself from going, I've got one. <laughs> I've got one. Use mine. 
20. <laughs> right, anyway, back to why we're here, right? Because I've done it again. I've taken Fine. us off topic. I want to understand what the process is for crafting the bespoke POS solutions and shopping shop environments. How do you go about doing it? Where do you even start? So I guess the process is a little bit bespoke and tailored to individual retailers or brands. So working with some brands, they'll have no idea what they want, and but they want something amazing. So we sit down with the creative designers and, and I was going to say pens and pencils, but it's more iPads and iMacs now, but it used to be pens and pencils and show my age. And we've got, <laughs> we've got amazing guys who are genuinely artists that can sketch and can draw and can model pretty much anything you can imagine. And they'll sit down and, and they'll, we'll do workshops and um come up with these really cool ideas and design managers and VM managers will love it and they'll take it off the recruitment and they'll go, it's too expensive. And you know, you kind of go through a design iteration process and other people, you know, there are huge design agencies out there that do this for a living. You know, they're the likes of Sart GX and, um, Dizel Power and they, they, they will come to us with almost design intent. And then it's up to us as manufacturers to interpret their design intent into what actually works. So we love it when we get to get involved right at the start and we can almost work on the strategy of design as to, you know, where is your eye level going to be? What's your ergonomics look like? But sometimes we're just taking someone else's design and, and, and making it. How it goes through the factory, we've got the ability to make everything in-house. So woods, metals, plastics, acrylics, vacuum forming, fiberglass. So we're not wedded to any one particular method of manufacturing. We can genuinely design what we think is the right product for the customer, their budget, for the environment it's going to be in. Because it doesn't matter to us whether you make it out of cardboard or wood or we can tailor it to the end user. So we always try and come at it from a from two aspects, a two-prong approach is, does it hit the design brief? Is it going to deliver what the design brief is? And sometimes that's about return on investment or an uplifting sales. Sometimes it's about a brand, just creating a beacon of brand awareness and quality. So our USP and it, you know, is we are competing on, on a global market in the UK retailers from people that could procure in China, Poland, Middle East, even North Africa now are starting to, you know, starting to have these amazing factories. So our USP has to be quality. You know, we've been doing this 130 years and or three years, depending on how you take it. But you know, <laughs> we've got hundred people in the business working in, in in a in a factory. We're in control of our own destiny in terms of quality. So you can we can put our name to everything we do. So how do we approach it? Design and quality are the two things that we absolutely pride ourselves on. It's lean. It sounds lean. You're on it. You have to calm down. I, do you know what? I'm just going to say, I'm going to calm down. It'll be cool. We do it. I'll bring you a Starbucks. You can bring me a Costa. We can do yeah, a, we'll do a trade off. Well. <laughs> yeah. So look, last question from me, because I could ask you questions for, for hours. I really could. What excites you most about the future for Kessler's London? I guess we're going into a, a time of retail change in that genuinely, I think, Post-COVID, we are in a new world. I think the world has taken stock um, and I think we're ready to kick on into this real destination retail, retail theme park kind of world. So what excites me the most is um, having a business that's now stable and profitable and able to respond to that. Because when you're in a business that's losing money or, or is in a bad place culturally, you can't respond to the changing forces because you can't, you're constantly fighting fires in your own. So we can take a sort of strategic look of where we want to be as a business. Now, that might be an acquisition. It might be partnerships. But we are going to be able to work. We work with some amazing, some of the biggest brands that you could name, we, we, get, we already get to work with. And we're going to hopefully be their chosen partner to deliver the most exciting and fun retail experiences for the next 10 years and then i'm going to retire and and and, and live off the, buy your own <laughs> island and live off the reward uh, nothing nothing like that no i was gonna live off the wife and just retire and be tired and look after the kids because uh, yeah it's hard work um but no i think it's being the masters of our own destiny and getting to getting the business in a stable 
to be able to respond to the, the market forces because it's always felt like we're a bit of a passenger where it's kind of everything's being forced upon us in terms mm-hmm. of what our decisions are going to be made whereas now we can sort of pick and choose who we work with and get to work with good people and, and have wonderful conversations and do fun things you know be really proud of what we do go into go into a charlotte tilbury store with my wife and she's looking at the makeup and i'm going i made that i designed it i created it and you know i've got 100 people employed because of it it's amazing what you think those 100 people all come to work in something that you're responsible for that's like an amazing thing isn't it it's great now you said it sounds a bit scary. It's scary, it um, is scary, yeah. But it's great, though. <laughs> no, it is, it is great. It is great. Yeah, yeah, you are contributing to all of those people's lives in such a big way. And it's not just those people. It's their their husbands, their wives, their kids, their grandkids, their their friends, their family, everyone. Like You're contributing to that. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do. I think that's what I love about retail. It's, it's such a level of retail. Right? You know, retail, you can go into retail at 16 as a, as a, as a shelf stacker or as a till girl or as a, you know, a warehouse guy. And you can come out of the, the other side as an MD or an operations director on 250 grand a year. Retail, I don't think you can replicate that in any other industry. There's so many stories of Tesco CEOs doing that and Sainsbury CEOs doing that. And there is genuinely a pathway for everybody in retail to have a, a, a wonderful and amazing career. And hopefully by, by some sort of a alignment to retail, we can offer the same, same to other people as well. I'll have you know, when I was 16, I worked down the local Waitrose. I was the, uh, the head of the pet food and cleaning aisle. But one side was pet food, one side was cleaning stuff like your dazzies and your your aerials. It was my job to order the stock to make sure nothing was empty. It was my job to keep it stocked, face it up, make it look nice. Good luck. <laughs> Everyone's has a touch point with retail, you know, and not everyone has a touch point with automotive or with hospitality, but everyone has a touch point, whether you're a consumer of it or you're a stakeholder in it, but everybody's had a retail experience. And I guess that's what gets me out of bed every morning is that I'm doing something that it feels, I say it feels like it matters. And then my wife says that she's a head teacher and she's looking after the youth today. And that probably matters a little bit more. We've all got our role to play. Right. Talking of roles to play, I'm going to play the role of a quiz master now, because if it's time for you to take on the yes, no game, it's the only reason you came on. I know it is. So nervous. <laughs> Don't be nervous. So, nervous. so normally I give people the choice of a, of a topic. They get card one, two or three. But I've chosen a card for you today because I thought it was just so fitting. I've chosen retail. That's even worse, because now if I do badly, it's going to be even worse. Well, you just don't say yes or no. I'm not going to know whether you're telling me the right answer or not. As long as you don't say yes or no, I'm just going to go with it. Let's do it. If you hear the gong, it means you said yes, no, or a variance of yes, no. And your challenge is to see whether you can last 60 seconds without slipping up. And I'm going to do everything I can to make you say yes or no. Okay, Daniel, it's your time. I have 60 seconds ready and loaded. Do not say yes or no. Has the adoption of online shopping increased significantly in the UK retail sector? Absolutely. Without doubt. What about specific changes or innovations? Uh, What have you observed in the online shopping landscape in the UK in the last few months that have made you think, wow? That's a really technical question. Um, So I think it's the volume. So the value has remains relatively steady. It's definitely the the, the volume of clicks that go through yeah. a, an Amazon now. About the volume, you say? I did. <laughs> um, are many traditional uh, brick and mortar stores in the UK facing challenges uh, due to the growth of e-commerce? I think they're all facing challenges, but they're also facing opportunities. Those that are doing it well are really seeing the benefits and those that are not are falling by the wayside, which is really sad. 
Do you get sad when stores go down the pan? I really do. Honestly, mate, I just, I can't do it. You did it. You smashed it. I couldn't they find are. a way of catching you out. <laughs> I, I was like, I could give you really long answers. I'd be all right, but yeah. Okay. But the problem is, though, sometimes when you give a really long answer, you become comfortable in what you're saying. And then you normally it's the follow up questions I get people with. Loved it. Great fun. Right. Before I let you go, where can people go to learn more about you or reach out to you or even find out a little bit more about Kessler's London? I am a prolific user of LinkedIn, so you can always get me. I'll see a post most days. Uh, Daniel. Asterita, A-S-T-A-R-I-T-A on LinkedIn. Add me. I love friends. I love conversation. Let's have a chat. Or Kessler's website is www.kesslers.com. Um, right. Thank you very much, Daniel. It's been an absolute pleasure. You are an inspiration and I uh, can't wait to see where you go from here. Love it, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Some key takeaways from today's discussion with Daniel. The importance of honesty and integrity really did emerge as a critical step in the turnaround process. Being transparent with stakeholders, including customers, about the challenges Kessler's faced helped to rebuild trust and credibility. Here Daniel really brought to the surface the power of great communication and transparency and how they are the foundations to building or rebuilding relationships and credibility during challenging times. Actively engaging with customers, explaining the company's journey and seeking their support played a pivotal role in Kessler's rising from the ashes. Daniel and his team have built a connection with their customer base and shown how commitment to improvement has contributed to rebuilding relationships. For me, this is a class touch from Daniel. It clearly demonstrates how customer relationships are a valuable asset and involving them in the company's journey can foster support and loyalty. Daniel shared some of the strategic decisions that he had to make, such as negotiating with landlords, relocating to a cost-effective location, and how optimising space usage proved essential in overcoming financial challenges. Daniel said it himself, it's not always easy, you can't always be popular when making the right strategic decisions. But making tough calls, committing to and believing in your vision is critical for navigating challenging periods and ensuring long-term sustainability. Adopting a people-centric leadership approach where regular interactions with employees and maintaining an open and friendly atmosphere are prioritised contributed to the positive and motivated workplace that Daniel describes at Kessler's. Leaders who prioritise their team's well-being and maintain open communication foster a positive work culture, which carries with it lower attrition, loyalty and a camaraderie in pursuit of that North Star, all of which are essential to long-term success. The ability to be agile and adapt to challenges, such as the impact of COVID-19, showcase both Kessler's and Daniel's agile mindset. Finding alternative revenue streams like manufacturing COVID screens really did demonstrate flexibility in responding to external factors. Adaptability is a key trait for any successful business. Installing the right leadership values, values that are modelled behaviours throughout the organisation, contribute to a healthy culture. By being agile, Daniel and his team ensure that they can pivot and find new opportunities, continuously improving and meeting their customer needs. Post-COVID, Daniel returned focus to core competencies and successful business practices from before the challenging periods. This allowed Kessler's to streamline operations and retain stability. 
By identifying and leveraging core strengths, Daniel has been able to deliver for his customers and for his team, helping the organization to focus and rebuild. Embracing optimization and lean principles, particularly when downsizing warehouse space, contributed to maximizing efficiency and output with limited resources. Daniel explained how everyone around him was saying that downsizing by such a degree wouldn't work. But by working smarter and not harder, Daniel was able to optimise the space available to maximise the value add. The message here is that efficiency gains through optimizations and lean practices are valuable for maintaining productivity in resource-constrained situations. Even in environments where lean is new to an organisation, learning by doing is a win-win scenario for all. Clear and effective communication about Kessler's new direction, improvement plans and commitment to stakeholders played a significant role in building understanding and support, underlying the fact that clear and well-placed strategic communication is key during times of change, helping to align stakeholders, customers and employees. It's the age-old risk versus reward scenario. Daniel's willingness to take risks, such as buying Kessler's after it went bust, and during challenging times, demonstrated confidence in his vision and his ability to inspire confidence in others. This is brilliant leadership and a testament to Daniel's detailed analysis in order to take calculated risks. Driven by confidence and clear vision, this story is such a great example how risks can lead to transformative outcomes. Achieving a balance between cost-effectiveness and retaining essential talent is critical for sustainable operations in any organisation. It's a strategic balancing act of operational costs with the need for skilled and reliable staff. But Daniel has played this well. He knows the value of his people in the success of Kessler's. He respects his people and he understands where he is competing in terms of working conditions and pay. Having this mindfulness, Daniel's been able to create a competitive package for his team, keeping them motivated and retaining talent. If I was to summarise Kessler's rebirth and success, I would say it's down to a combination of strategic decision-making, financial management, people-centric leadership, and a commitment to transparency and continuous improvement. The ability to adapt to challenges and focus on core strengths has undoubtedly contributed to Kessler's resilience and growth. Daniel said that Kessler's goal is to make UK retail the most exciting destination in the world. I have no doubt that that is exactly what Daniel and his team will achieve. My only question is, why only the world? That brings us to an end of this episode of the Ever Saleem podcast. Thanks to Daniel for joining us today and telling us about not only his personal journey, but the wonderful journey of Kessler's London. Um, he's really an inspiration. And I think that the man talks such sense. There's so many wonderful nuggets of inspiration that we can pull from this episode that it's going to take me weeks to pull them apart. But it was absolutely brilliant. If you enjoyed today's episode and want more, be sure to subscribe and follow the Eversaline podcast on your preferred platform or visit eversaline.com. There, you can also catch up on any missed episodes and explore the range of services that we're now offering, including leadership coaching, lean excellence consultancy, podcast services, and event hosting as well. Take a moment to like and review the Eversaline podcast on your listening platform of choice. It would mean the world to me. Your reviews are really invaluable, and I appreciate each and every one. For those on social media, search for the Eversaline podcast, give us a follow, and share your lean efforts, because I really would love to hear all about them. Thanks so much. And I'll see you on the next episode. And don't forget, Eversaline, you know it makes sense. The Eversaline podcast is researched, produced and recorded by Matt Sims. Visit eversaline.com to find out more. Yeah.